Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I get guests on the show and I talk to them about their work. Maybe they're writers, maybe they're researchers in an interesting field who've written a non-fiction book, maybe they're editors or publicists, anything like that. Anyone who is doing something to do with the business of making stories or making words work a little bit harder than they normally do. I get them on and I talk to them. Sometimes I talk about my own work or just things that I'm thinking about that might be only tangentially related to the book world. And uh, sometimes I look at the first pages of listeners' work, the first 250 words, which you are free to send in to me if you'd like me to do uh, a little bit of an analysis on. And I, I just give some feedback. I suggest ways to make it better. I, I point out things that I don't think are working and I try to be forthright and honest while playing the ball, not the man, if uh, that makes sense, because I think it's important for that we, we, we maintain a healthy distance between ourselves and our work. Now, now some people that comes naturally. They're just like, why would I ever in any way worry about my personal worth as seen through the lens of a story about a person who returns to their childhood home as an adult and dark secrets arise from their family you know why would you go well does that make me a better or worse person why would you judge whether you're allowed to be happy go well I won't don't want to don't want to let myself be too happy today unless I've done a good bit of writing I better just throttle back that happiness a little bit you know I don't want to I want to keep an eye on that because what if I got too happy and I hadn't written literature of a quality commensurate with being happy i might be walking down the street whistling to myself and and people might go oi excuse me you do not have the cultural cachet to be whistling in such a carefree manner where's this joie de vivre sprung from you haven't earned it you might be policed by strangers i mean that's where we sometimes approach work i i understand that you listening now may have a completely non-toxic relationship with your work and that's you are, you are welcome listening to this show it is no badge of honor it is no mark of being a real writer to be neurotic there are happy writers there are there are casual writers believe it or not you're allowed you can be a real writer and just kind of write sometimes because it's fun and also the identity of being a real writer doesn't really mean anything that's that's the other thing hey listen i just want to say to you you're a real writer here is your special rosette of legitimacy and your certificate of legitimacy the identity of writer is calling yourself a writer is nfts before nfts were a thing right it's not if you don't even get a receipt a piece of paper saying you own this thing you just get to in your head and sometimes I guess when you're introducing yourself to other people who go I'm a writer well it means nothing it means absolutely nothing and that's fine right it's it's fine in the same way you wouldn't just go around going I'm an eater you do more eating I'm presuming than you do writing you're more legitimately an eater than you are a writer and, and it means about as much you know it's like good for you if you eat and you enjoy it I'm, I'm super glad for you it's a lovely thing to do but it's one tiny aspect of your identity as a person and you would be silly to climb inside the author clown suit and zip it up at the back and start 
bumbling around the world going, I'm an author. Hoo-hoo. Hello, everyone. I'm an author. That's me. That's my identity. Look at me. And I'm, I'm making this joke because, of course, I do it all the time. Now, today's episode uh, is kind of in the series of episodes I've been doing called, I was going to say called tentatively, but no, concretely called writing uh, a novel. Uh, there are a series where I'm talking about the process of writing a novel and I'm, I'm going through my own process from beginning presumably to end although I might pass away before it's finished I mean it may just more than anything be a process of uh, failure for me but I, I thought I wanted to do this episode now I, I would say if you've not listened to the previous episodes they are all in a playlist and you can go back and listen to from the beginning uh, and I'll put a link in the description of today's episode so you can find that if you want or you can just google tim clare writing a novel podcast and you'll find the playlist on my soundcloud page and so you can you can start from the beginning but actually i would say most of them it's it's better because i'm you know going from idea to starting to write first pages of this this book that i i didn't have an idea for i just wanted to write for the podcast to kind of just do a bare bones like just just show how i would approach it and you get to watch and you there might be bits that you find useful. Uh, it, it might just be useful to have a sort of self-conscious reflection on, on what's going on, where we're actually slowing it down a bit to look at it and go, what's going on here? What are the problems here? What are decisions are being made here? How might something get better? So you can see somebody else doing it, because we don't normally get to actually see, we don't normally have access to that. You know, writers will talk about their process, but they're often talking about their process. We're often talking about a process in the context of maybe a talk at a bookshop or whatever or we're writing an article about it and there's a pressure to be interesting and insightful and I'm I've freed myself from the pressures of being interesting or novel or you know a lot of writing tips come from writers who are still feeling a sense that their writing tips ought to be pithy and funny and surprising and interesting and you know, a little, maybe a little bit counterintuitive because we're wanting to tell a story and we want to be entertaining with our words. And so, you know, all the writing tips that are most shared by authors are not shared because people go, I did this writing tip and it worked really well for me and it's made a material difference to my writing practice. We share them because they're funny or interesting or they sound a bit counterintuitive or they're very bold and they sound very confident you know they they, they have a sense of authority by virtue of being extremely definite about what they say or maybe just because they come from somebody who's a famous author and so we think by virtue of them being an expert or having done well they are going to have better advice there's lots of evidence to suggest that super duper experts in a field are actually in many ways, well, they certainly don't give any better advice than people who are just have some experience in that field. Often because the real, because they've not, they've not had to articulate a bunch of unconscious processes and abstract concepts that inform everything they do. You can be good at something without necessarily having much or even any insight into the exact mechanisms that allow you to be good at that thing far less having the words 
to articulate that and communicate that to a variety of other people with a variety of needs and situations and different and and especially in writing subtly and sometimes massively different goals to you in in terms of what you want to do with your writing you think about the great diversity of even just even novel length fiction in terms of what those books are actually trying to do in terms of what maybe somebody writing commercial crime fiction might be trying to achieve with their novel that might differ from someone who was writing say a piece of literary fiction or somebody who's writing a fantasy novel or a science fiction or a romance novel or somebody who is trying to write an experimental piece or somebody who's trying to write YA or somebody who's trying to write for younger children. I guess that wouldn't be novel length, but you get the idea, right? And then just even within genres, authors have different voices. They have, even within the same genre, by the same author, there are authors who different novels produced throughout their career are different enterprises where they attempt different things, where they've got different things they're trying to communicate. So to be good at actually giving advice, and somehow your advice has got to encapsulate all of that or speak to all of that in some meaningful way it's got to be give information that that listeners don't have already i'm not trying to bring this up like i'm well the entire enterprise of doing this podcast is a nonsense as i've said this wasn't me setting this up to say well i'm brilliant although i suppose at least i'm i don't have the burden of expertise on on my no i i do i write a lot i write a lot and have done and i've given my life to it so i think i don't have to be falsely modest i, I don't have the i don't I don't have the uh, halo of huge achievement in the area let's put it that way but i think one thing about doing this process and letting you in on it is hopefully just the experience of there might be stuff that by sharing the work as i write it and reflecting on it in that way there might be things that you notice that I don't have the insight to notice as the writer, right? You know, I might share stuff with you and you might go, well, I don't know, I didn't know that word. That rang a bit false and, oh, that change, that edit has actually made it worse. And you might have insight into something that might speak to your own writing process. I just think whenever we deal with specifics, it certainly becomes far more... It's good to have overarching principles. It's good to have abstractions that that work as rules or rules of thumbs. It's, it's good to have heuristics that guide how we approach. That's how you sort of downstream a lot of the work, right? I don't think I've used downstream in the correct i don't think that is how what downstreaming means at all it basically automatizes automates even a lot of the heavy lifting of style if you're able to uh, internalize principles of composition right if you're able to go oh you know your sentence should look a bit like this or a successful sentence a lot of the time will look like this and then your first draft you can you can just incorporate some of those thoughts and your first draft will be that little bit better and then you can go back to stuff later and you can fiddle about with it and you can break some of those rules if you want to but you break those rules in an informed way people go wait you got to know the rules before you break them or oh, really great writers they're not really constrained by rules well they are that's to prove that find a specific sentence that breaks a rule and show it me and because I, th- I think you're right, but I don't think you know why you're right. I'm not. Co- I, I, I'm not convinced you're not just spouting that. If you can take me to a sentence and we'll walk through it together, and you can show me 
what the rule is that it's breaking and why it's a success i i will i will listen to you but it you can't just go where you've got to see even the great writers break the rules don't they and that's kind of originality you want to do something new well yeah but are you doing that you can learn yourself into a corner as a writer by essentially i've had this in in writing groups in writing workshops occasionally where somebody has learned enough jargon and lingo and pithy bon mots and writing axioms that they basically just made themselves a master at workshop criticism judo of just any suggestion that the work that they've produced might be in some way amenable to improvement through editing they are able to just immediately <laughs> like these two like these two whirling miniguns open up either side of them and start just firing chaff into the air completely uh completely defending them from any homing missiles of constructive criticism that might be uh, shooting towards their manuscript because they've you know they've learned enough to defend stuff and in a way that's just not helpful okay so in today's episode I, I i want i've been thinking about the first page of this book and i tried to go on to later bits and then i was just like oh, i'm still gonna, i just want to feel like i get the i just want to feel like i get a bit of the voice i was just i felt like i wanted to peer around with it a bit more is that bad am i am i getting stuck I don't think I am. I'm, I've been quite enjoying rewriting it. But I also thought I haven't been reading much lately, much fiction. I've been reading a lot of non-fiction for the book I'm working on. And I just thought, actually, I don't have to guess in some super abstract way. What's a first, what's a first, what's a first page like? What, what could that be? Oh, I should invent that from the ground up. I'm going to have to completely from the ground up make a first what could how could a story what's a story what's narrative form i'm gonna have to that's really dumb because humans have been telling stories for millennia and i could just you know tap into a little bit of that and not only that but like there's a lot of novels out and you're allowed to pick them up and go what the flip's happening happening here you know you can copy people you're allowed you can't i mean you can't plagiarize someone but there's absolutely no sin in seeing how people in your genre have been doing stuff and then going okay how can i apply that that's what they're doing presumably i, d I, d I doubt they've never read a novel before so you can just do it like why not and I, th I was like why haven't i just been picking up some fancy novels why did i jump into this without us having the discuss uh, having the discussion what's a what's the first page look like that people have already done now, my first page might not look exactly like that because I've got a different story I'm trying to tell. But can we look at these first pages, look at the specifics and then go, OK, but what principles might we abstract from here? So this is going from the specific to the general. Like, what can we take from this? What what did do we what worked? What maybe worked but isn't pertinent to what we're trying to do? what don't I like so much and that's fine for you to do that because taste is is what creates your voice as a writer to a certain extent it's not necessarily an attack on the book certainly not the author even if you hate a book it doesn't mean anything about the author's character or their skill or anything like that you just 
bounce off it but you know it's fine to have taste because that's how you start deciding what you like and and some of that will come from finding stuff and go i love this and sometimes you'll love stuff and go but i cannot replicate it My, what i want to write about is completely different how many of us have got authors or you know movies or whatever that we that we love precisely because it's something we could never do and so it feels like magic um and it, we kind of know that maybe it's I, I never want to put too many boundaries on what we can and can't do but we kind of know that that's in a different area that we're ever going to be working in and you just kind of go wow isn't the diversity of art amazing and then there's be stuff that you go that's neat and I think I understand how they did it and I wonder if I can replicate it and I think that's always interesting and cool so I went to the library this is the other thing is I went, went to the library this week because and I know it's no great revelation to you to so know that libraries exist but I've got one about two minutes walk from my front door and I wouldn't have even gone there uh this time except that and one of the reasons why I ha- I ha- there's been a little bit of a delay since the last podcast is is my six-year-old daughter uh broke her ankle on a trampoline she's fine she's doing really well uh, but it meant that they had a school trip to the library and I was going to have to take her to school and then she was going to have to walk all the way from her school back to this library that's just out by our front door and so I was like hang on you know why don't I just take her directly to the library she and then she missed like the first half an hour of school and then met her school friends there I dropped her off and then I picked her up afterward and took her into school so she wouldn't have to walk on her broken ankle and and so I went into the library and then I was like all the kids were there and they'd all been told to like bring in their library cards and they could choose a book and they could get their book out and they could scan it and the library people were there and the librarians and what they're generally called the library people that's how they prefer to be called uh, and, and and then and then when I went to pick her up one of the staff was sitting and reading a story to all the kids but the thing was I went in and the kids were already like going around going wow and there were all these books and they were each one of them was like they were excitedly picking a book and going this is going to be my book that I get out and they looked at the cover and they're like this is cool I'm excited about this and then they were all queuing up to get their book their free book that they were going to borrow with their library card and they were so excited and I was like holy shit libraries are a thing that is cool. And I started looking at the book and I was like, I could, I've got a library card. I could take out any of these. I'm allowed. I was like, I, was like, I can, I felt like a, I felt like a, a bug. I felt like I was going to do a heist. I was like, I'm allowed to just, I can just take this and this and this and this. And then, and then I could just bounce with a load of free swag. And I was filled with the same excitement as these kids. I was like, oh my God gosh oh yeah libraries oh oh li- oh yeah oh yeah that's what these oh it's it's a it's a free it's free books forever and then you don't even have to worry about shelving them at home you you just read them and and then you take them back and they deal with that so you just get the lovely lovely feeling of reading some books and they're completely free and we're living through a cost of living crisis at the moment i'm stony broke and two minutes from my door is just more books than I could read in my entire lifetime for free whenever I want. What the hell have I been doing? And I just went a bit like crazy. 
I just <laughs> went a bit like my eyes were widening and I felt exactly like those five and six year olds taking their books out proudly, which was just thrilling. And I know it's like the least controversial take I could possibly push in the world of literature to go. I think libraries are valuable and we should fund them and keep them. Uh, but we should. And they're amazing. And I'm 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 sort of lost for words because uh, on the one hand it's obvious on the other e- one thing about growing up in the UK is it was so ubiquitous you know me going to my library when even when I lived in uh, Porter's Head the small town I grew up in which now has that it, it had this old library in a beautiful sort of old building which has now been replaced by a new one but I don't mind that it's modern because I don't, it's it's great it's a lovely bigger library and we've now got there's now an independent bookshop in the town and that's just really thrilling to me but I, I grew up being able to go and look through the book boxes and, and take books out and it was you know I grew up at the time where you'd get your books stamped and there'd be those little flaps with the dates on in the front and they'd go there'd be that lovely double stamp sound of in the ink and then on on your book and you take your books out and you could read them and god it's so nice and now it's even cooler because you get to slide it under and a screen reads the title for you and then you and then and then i get to go (laughs) and then i got loads of free books and i was like what the hell is going on this is amazing so and, and like a lot of people since the pandemic i've just been struggling to with concentration and reading it sometimes it's felt hard to really knuckle down and read and so I just try I got some books out anyway that was me going off on one about how great libraries are use your local libraries if you can a lot of people got in touch with me to say you you, you can also use services to hire out ebooks and that's super good uh, uh, I think it's wonderful that that exists but I prefer reading physical copies where I can if I'm traveling ebooks are uh, useful if a book is particularly bulky uh, ebooks are useful but I, I prefer physical books and also I, I want to use my local library service because that all goes into their circulation numbers and it helps keep them open while, while giving some some money to the authors involved if they're signed up to to PLR. So anyway, I thought I would get some books out and I'm going to read the whole things, but I thought we could look at the first pages of a couple of books that are in the kind of fantasy genre and see how they handle being a first page and if we think they're successful if that makes you want to read on um i've chosen stuff in the sort of more accessible kind of commercial fantasy end as opposed to i suppose i mean there's not really a lot of literary fantasy out there is there there's most stuff is kind of commercial fan most fantasy is on the commercial end i think it's only dickheads like me who are like going "Mm, what if it was weird but slow (laughs) what if it made you work really hard for anything to happen but there will be monsters to alienate the people who like words but feel that things that aren't real are a bit silly it's kind of the worst of both worlds it's like you imagine a book where there was a tiny tiny little islet in the venn diagram of people who might conceivably enjoy the book that's who i'm shooting for here well yeah so i thing is like i my taste in fantasy is, is clearly and i hope this is true for anyone's tastes in reading 
is clearly broader than what I write. I can't really help but write in a fussy, baroque way. And I, I try to dial it back. And I say I can't help but do that. Of course, I could work on it and I could write in a different way. Uh, and I imagine that even without trying too hard, I could sort of throttle that tendency in one direction or the or other. Um, and I, I, and I, I genuinely believe that most of us could write in a completely different voice if we put our minds to it. But my tendency, and the place that I often quite enjoy writing, if I'm honest, is is that slightly fussy, gnarly end of things. But I think these are books probably that are going to prove to be maybe uh, the prose is a little cleaner and a little bit more to the point and uh, a little bit more direct. But who knows? So I'm, I'm just going to read out a couple of like opening tiny bits from these books and I, I'll probably put links in the show notes if you want to go and check any of these out just before I jump into it you know obviously I think I will have some positive things to say about all of these because they're published and I'm sure that they're serving an audience but you know there may be some bits where I go I wouldn't have done that myself or that's not what I like and I, I just want to say that I don't want to come off as like I'm being a dick to published authors uh, not in a because I'm particularly worried about starting a spat and people coming for me i i'm i'm fine with that i'm used to that it doesn't bother me in it in the slightest i don't care but just because i i normally reserve any like critique for stuff that's unpublished because that's still in a malleable state right so if that feels to me like the definition of constructive criticism right because if if someone if I say I don't think the sentence works very well and someone has explicitly sent me something for the purposes of critiquing it, they can change that if they want, right? If you wait until after something's published and it's in, it's, the ink is dried, then it can seem a bit like you're just going, you're just being unconstructive and mean. I'm not trying to do that. I'm assuming that these authors do not really, aren't too worried about Tim what Tim Clare thinks of their work and I know that they've all got an audience who like their work so I would never want it to sound like that I'm, I'm just saying like clearly we want to differentiate what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do with my book and what I care about and I would hope that that is sometimes at variance with what is published out there otherwise I would just be sort of slavishly reproducing existing works so, yeah, I just want to say that I'm not, these aren't comments on the authors themselves, they're comments on the book. Uh, I, I haven't looked at them, which is the reason I'm also setting up this now, is I haven't yet looked at them. And I don't know what I'm going to say. I might just be sort of agog with how brilliant they are and, and not have anything to say, but I might also spontaneously say some stuff that later people go, oh, Tim, you sounded like you were being a bit mean or unkind. And I don't, I always always think we've got to live in a grown-up world where we don't uncritically love everything if we want to get better at writing we have to have ways of talking about stuff that we think don't didn't hit the mark for us and i don't want to continually hedge my feedback on stuff by pretending that something was better i thought it was better than it was i think we can deal with honesty because None of this stuff is about an author's, it's not a reflection on an author's character, you know, it's just, it's just some shit we put out there, you know, it doesn't matter. People have read, you know, my books and, and hated them or, you know, not hated them, but thought 
uh, some bits were all right and some bits could have done with some work right and I, I i wouldn't ever want them to not feel free to have that opinion that would be absolutely pathological so anyway that's that's where i am is i just want to i'm coming to peers with uh, a sense of uh, an openness to learning and let's without further ado have a look so i haven't I, I just literally picked these off the library shelves in the fantasy section i there was no particular i don't really i don't even know if i don't actually not actually sure that they're all fantasy per se but they look fantasy-ish so here we go so the first is uh by peter v brett i've never read any of his work before but he i am i'm presuming yeah he's an uh yeah, I'm presuming he sells all right. Yeah, he's a best-selling, Sunday Times best-selling author. Um, and this is the beginning of a of a, a brand new epic fantasy adventure. Um set in an existing world in an existing world that he's he's created apparently, but following a new generation of hit uh, heroes. Um so so it's uh it's a it's a cycle set in his demon it's a, in his demon cycle world. Um and it's called the Desert Prince. So, sounds very fantasy-ish already. There's a prince, and there's an adjective. So we know. Sorry, that sounds like I'm being snark. I'm not being snarky. I'm. That's only a thing about names that fantasy novels have. They have to have. They have to have a the something dragon, the something king, the something prince, the something assassin, and yeah. The Desert Prince. It's a it's a solid name. You, you don't really care about names. You don't. You, I you know. I would. I, I would like. I like it if there could be some fantasy novels called like Brian's Tuba, or The Onion That Winked. That would be. I'd like. I'd, I'd really like that. That would. That would make me super happy, because it would. The Onion That Winked is just a good. I'd be like, okay, I've, yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. Let's see what your first page is going to do. The onion that winked, and and you can imagine that cheeky little onion on the on the front page, just giving you a little, bing, a little, little star, a little spark coming out of that cheeky little wink, a little saucy wink, maybe, maybe it's a maybe it's a French onion, maybe it has a certain, a certain. Uh, a Gallic roguish charm. Thinking, whoa, that onion's making me quite aroused, actually. Anyway, I'm. Didn't mean today's episode to veer into onion porn. Although maybe, maybe that's my maybe that's my calling. Maybe that's my unfound niche is just just writing books about. The onion that winked, and it's just about somebody who thinks they're having a, a, a psychotic break because they see an onion wink at them, but then it becomes like a an erotic obsession. <laughs> I, I mean, I would keep reading in a kind of sick. I'd be receiving psychic damage with every page that I turned. Of going, why am I doing this? But I'd have to know where it, they were going with it. What's going to happen? You know, you because it has that energy of 
any good romantic or erotic narrative of like what what how will it feel when they consummate because it's an onion <laughs> okay so the first that didn't wow okay so the first uh page the chapter one starts i am olive um and there, there's a little illustration of an olive here, so I don't think it's even a joke. But that was not what well, I wasn't alluding to that with the onion thing. This is that's just a little bit of uh, happenstance. Let's let's pretend. But I, yeah, it's nothing to do with. I don't think this is going to be about having sex with a, a winking olive. Uh, uh, I, but I don't. On the other hand, I can't see just glancing over the page. I can't see that there's any character called Olive. I assumed that the main character, maybe, uh, anyway, or maybe, or maybe, maybe they are, maybe, maybe this main character, maybe the main narrator in this is called Olive, I am Olive, 349AR, so it's given us a title, which maybe the formula for the book is going to be that we get a named, the name of the narrator um, for each chapter, maybe there's a range of narrators. That's quite a common fancy trope. And then there's a year, which I suppose, unless you're sort of deep into the law of the world, is going to be completely meaningless to you, and it's going to immediately just r roll off and disappear. Um, but if you've read the cycles before, maybe that has that lands a bit better. So, so sort of all that is 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 preamble in the first line. I'm not going to read very much, by the way, in case there are people sort of listening. Uh, checking for kind of copyright and stuff just enough to to, to do a little uh, for review purposes um so it starts my head jerks as uh, misha pulls a lock taut while she sections and plaits my long black hair i'm used to it i can't remember a time i wasn't being yanked around to meet expectations hold still grandmum elona snaps putting another dusting on the brush almost powdered your eyeball What's the point of painting my face, I grumble, when I have to go dressed in a canvas tarp? Ilona laughs. There's always time for the powder kit. I know she's mean I know she means it. I've never seen grandmum looking anything less than perfectly put together. She finishes my eyes and gets to work on my lashes. Your princess of hollow might have to put on the same potato sack as the other apprentices, but those girls look up to you, can't settle for being anything less than the prettiest one in the room. Mistress Darcy is going to ha give a test today in herb law, I said. I need time to compare notes with Selen. Misha hisses her approval. You should have thought of that last night, sister. So, slightly complicated. Uh, try to keep that straight there, the various characters. So... There's three characters in this. Presumably the narrator is at Olive. Misha is the sister. And then there's the grandma, grandmum Elona. So there's three people involved in getting this person ready, Olive, who's a princess. So let's say so this is an opening to a fancy novel. Let's I want to talk a bit about this. So my head jerks back as Misha pulls a lock taut while she sections and plaits my long black hair. I'd like, I like the specificity. You know, don't take, don't take the Mickey out of me. You know, 
my head jerks as Misha pulls a lock talk. That's a nice active opening, right? That's a, like a, you feel that. That's a very in character in that's a very good use of using a first person narrator right that's you are very aware if someone yanks your hair my head jerks as misha pulls a lock taut while she sections and plaits my long black hair my head jerks so um i i my head jerks as misha pulls a lock taut i i feel like that 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 wants to end there that sentence as soon as it goes on the sentence gets a bit more clunky while she sections and plaits my long black hair so i really i mean i I like this as an image and i like it as a feeling i like that we're getting into sensory detail i love the use of the verbs sections and plaits she's not just doing uh olive's hair presumably this is olive the narrator she is sectioning it and plaiting it which is you know on the one hand is very simple uh, they're not difficult verbs but they're nicely specific right she's she's getting she's taking it into however many whatever difficulty of plaits i've only ever done a three-part plait but she's she's pulling it into sections and then she's yanking it taut because she's doing these tight plaits uh and that's those are those are the right words and these are these are like sim these are all simple words that we can understand but they're the right ones and that's what i mean when i'm talking about like i I feel like that's, that's quite a rich sentence the only bit i don't like is while she sections and plats one i'd say my head jerks as misha pulls a lock taut while she sections and plaits so one reason i think i'm finding that sentence a bit tricky is because my head jerks there's that's one uh, clause as misha pulls so there's this linking thing my head jerks sim as misha pulls a lock taut so my head jerks as misha pulls a lock taut so there's this simultaneous as means simultaneously in this thing so my head jerks as misha pulls a lock taut Okay, so there's two actions. My head jerks, Misha pulls a lock taut. We, we, it's linked by this conjunction as that's telling us the relationship between those two two clauses. While she sections and plaits my long black hair. So as and while mean the same thing. So now we've been told that there's three simultaneous actions. My head jerks, while, essentially my head jerks while Misha pulls a lock taut while she sections and plaits my long black hair. So the, the relationship is, there's this doubled relationship. These things all are like presented like they're happening simultaneously as and while. But they're not, they're the same action. My head jerks because Misha pulls a lock taut. Um, and she's doing that because she's sectioning and plaiting my long black hair. I, I would write it as my head jerks as Misha pulls a lock taut. Full stop. We end lock taut. Lock taut is nice. And that is a little bit this idea of a lock and it being taut. And that's that's cool, right? That's on theme. She's sectioning and plaiting my long black hair. Now, I don't like that as much as sections and plaits. Those sound better, but... Um, but I just don't like it's the it's the relationship between those is all fuzzy and I'm having to hold three in my head on a first sentence. But overall, I like that image and I like a lot of the language choices. I just might have t- looked at some other way of phrasing that. I'm used to it. Really good. That's like a really is the next sentence, right? My head 
jerks as Misha pulls a lock tour while she sections and plaits my long black hair. I'm used to it. That's that's like a nice bit of character. I can't remember a time I wasn't being yanked around to meet expectations. No, fuck off. No, don't spoil it. No. It's like... I, I want to go back a second just to say m- my long black hair is a is a point of view slip. I'm so barely aware of my own hair and its colour and its state. I mean, I, I look like that as well. I look continually like a man who's a bin living on scrubland, uh, eating sort of some a di- discarded cardboard box of Walker's crisps and squirrels. Uh, but nobody... If you've got long black hair, you never you think of your hair. You don't. You might think about it as long when it's kind of getting tangled or in the way. You never think of your black hair. No, that's just for the reader. And while she sections and plaits my long black hair. No, you don't. You're not thinking about that now. You're not thinking about the color. You do not care about that. That is my head jerks. Is is like that's as as, as, as Misha pulls a lock tool. That's really in the head of the character that she's aware of that because it hurts because it's uncomfortable because someone is physically moving her head by pulling at her hair you don't care that it's black you're not you don't think about that you've it, it it's been like that all your life that's just a nuts thing for a no one would think that and that is just for the audience and, and you know, you're one step away from having a character look at themselves in the mirror and admire their slim figure or whatever. It's just, it's nonsense. It's not, no, that's, that's poor. I'm not, I I just want to say what I, I suppose, I'm, I'm again, I'm not talking about the author here and I'm not, you might love this and you might go, look, I don't care about that, Tim. And like, I, I know, like nobody, also who, you could, you know, you might think that I'm being pedantic and you say, well, Tim, like, also nobody talks to themselves in clean, full sentences. This is a convention of storytelling and it's conveyed a little bit of information about the character's appearance. It doesn't matter. Like, we understand that this is in some way a confection of the fictional process. It doesn't matter. To me, it does matter because you're using the first person. And I think if you want to use the first person... And you want to have an internal experience and interiority and give us the sense of what it's like to be this person. You should try to cleave to that as closely as you can, especially in a first line. Otherwise, you're just going, you know, I'm going to use first person, but I might as well not be. uh, Because this character is going to talk about themselves in a weirdly external clinical way a lot of the time. That's what how I feel about it. But the reason I'm talking about this now is, I guess, because... I love that interior bit. I really like that. I think actually the and I'm used to it. That's really good. Like that that feeling of like in two sentences you've conveyed you already give the impression of somebody who is being either being made up and we get this later in the scene but like is being made up for a role and it's painful and other people are telling them what to do. And they're chafing against it. You know, it's almost like a horse having its bridle, having its reins pulled, right? And that is in two sentences, and I really get a sense of this character already. That is incredible economy. And, and so I want to emphasize the things I think are doing uh, uh, good, right? I think that's 
a lo- that's a lot. That's very quick for me. And I feel quite, I feel invested. I feel invested. But then I can't remember a time I wasn't being yanked around to meet expectations. I know. Do you, do you, I mean, I'm a human and you've just told me that. You've told me that. And so that's the bit that I would be, if I if we're thinking about writing our own fantasy novel and we want to do a first page, just do not step in with that with that I think an editor should have gone you do you you know you you do you trust your readers you don't have to step in with an insurance line like that to go yeah you know it's a bit like uh you know when she had her hair pulled just uh, a sentence ago that's like a kind of metaphor for the way she lives her life <laughs> It's like we know. And if we don't know, frankly, we don't deserve to know. But we'll get it. If we don't pick that up already, we still have that sense of someone being constrained. We still feel like she's being fussed over. It doesn't It doesn't matter if we don't extrapolate that to her whole existence yet. Because just get let us let me read the story. So I that's I, I feel conflicted about that first paragraph, but I see much to admire in it, right? I, 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 I just would not approach it in the same way, and I might try to be a little bit more restrained and not spoon-feed my readers because I think they're smart. Um, I, I, so hold still, Grandmum Elona snaps, putting another dusting on the brush. Almost powdered your eyeball. I think that is good dialogue. Hold still. Almost powdered your eyeball. So there's like sentence fragments there. Um, I like putting another dusting on the brush. Doesn't really say a dusting of what, which I like. And I forget that you can put sort of, uh, I guess they're things like, I want to call them Pomodoros, but, or Pompadour, or what, I don't know what the name of like the, you're screaming at me now. I can't hear you whatever it was whatever the name for these kind of like perfumes are and and, and uh powdered whatever that you that the people can put in hairs in hairs in hair but um it's cool like i just i feel like that is enough detail i feel like that's a good example of writing with interiority putting another dusting on the brush right it just assumes you know the, another dusting right so it, it's starting in media res. It's starting in the story. It says another dusting. So it implies that we've almost... Bit, this story was already going when we joined in. A dusting of what we don't... We're not told, but it implies you're familiar with this. Like, you know what's going on. And I can see it. And I believe in it. And that this world feels 3D when I read that line. And I like it. I, I like a lot of that. The only thing I don't really like is, and this is just a per taste thing, is, is hold still, Grandma Malona snaps. It's it's not egregious. I'm just saying that my personal preference would be says, because I can tell from context that it's a snap. I don't need you to step in to go and hold still, she said snappily. Like, I, I know, I know she's, I can tell from context, you don't need to keep, you don't keep need to keep digging me in the ribs with your elbow going, can you see? Do you get that? Do you understand? I know, I know, but it's not, it's not a huge thing, right? However, these dialogue tag choices, I think, can have a cumulatively wearing effect. 
What's the point of painting my face? I grumble. When I have to go dressed in a canvas tarp. So don't say I grumble. I know. You just say, I say. That is, that's bad, right? What's the point of painting my face? I grumble. When I have to go dressed in a canvas tarp, why not put, what's the point of painting my face, I say, when I have to go dressed in a canvas tarp? Like we, don't, my focus of that sentence should not be the word grumble. I grumble. I, I know. Also, you don't really think of it as you grumbling. You think of it as you making a legit, that's a that's a weirdly sort of judgmental take on your own dialogue and in the moment yeah i mean maybe you're sort of maybe the character is grumbling and maybe they even feel themselves whining and don't like it but just say i say i want the focus to be on the dialogue which is kind of fine right What's the point of painting my face when I have to go dressed in a canvas tarp? Like, that should be the focus. Elona laughs. Didn't like this, that it starts off as grandmum Elona. Okay, cool, you want us to know that she's the grandmum. Elona laughs. There's always time for the powder kit. I know she's mean. she means it. I've never seen grandmum looking anything less than perfectly put together. So now we've had you... We've only had the name mentioned once, but... She's bit where she was grandmum Ilona, and then across two sentences we have her referred to as Ilona and grandmum. Well, I'm sorry, but like I'm just starting out in this book, and that is making me do more work than I feel comfortable with. Where you, where a character, you, there's been three mentions of this character, this character, and you have used three different modes of address for them. You've called them grandmum Ilona, Ilona, and grandmum. That's hard for me. That's what... Like, I can't... Like, doesn't... Doesn't this character have a stable appellation for this person? I don't... I don't... Like, I don't have anyone in my life apart from, like... The one legitimate kind of character that people would have, like, multiple nicknames for is if they've got a cat. Like, everyone who has a cat has, like, 50 names for their own cats. It's, like, these Byzantine nicknames that if you ever find yourself calling the cat in front of somebody you don't know very well and then realise that you're calling your cat, like, MC Schmoodlebum the third or something, and you go, sorry, it's like, I'm so many... It's so many nested in-jokes and uh, things that rhymed with something else that I said once. Because you just talk to your cat a lot and you start using weird names for them, right? But not here. Like, if you, your grandma... Yeah, I mean, okay, so some of us, like, you, you have two grandparents and then you, you... Two grandmas and then you give one, like, grand, you know, Grandma Ilona or something. You might know if you've got two. But I just... I know. Why would you do that? Why would you do... It's just complicated. On a first page, especially, just everything should be as clean and there should be as as, as few snags to our understanding as possible. And I get it, right? He wants us to know she, Alona, is Olive's grandma. Right? So Grandma Alona is not how... Olive would probably allude to her, right? She'd probably just call her grandmum. 
but she but the author wants us to know hey this is Alona who is also the grandmother and so th- this kind of clunkiness comes in and I, I just don't like it just trust us just trust to stop trying to and I I remember a friend of mine when he was looking through my first an early uh, draft of the honors who's who and does who doesn't write uh fantasy had a really good bit of advice for me which is just like try to avoid especially early on all of the concepts that start with a capital letter and 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 do your best not to capitalize in world concepts as much as you can just because one that flags to the reader you've got to remember this i've got to start remembering it's really important the relationship between them and two it's just such a fantasy thing to start loading the reader up with these kind of bags of do do i need to know the relationship so that's what i'd say i'd I'd, I'd say like let us figure out her name later on or whatever but she's just grandmom isn't she so that's what i'd say that's i mean these are notes to myself as aside from anything else i've never seen grandmom looking anything i know she means it i've never seen grandmom looking anything less than perfectly put together i'd think that's kind of cool with it's making a step out of the moment uh to reflect on that a little bit to it's like going let me tell you what i think about this character but it's it's fine i you know i'm a bit of a purist about staying in the narrative present but it's not a big deal uh she finishes my eyes and gets to work on my lashes i, I like i like these details of the actual doing the makeup a bit like I quite I quite like that just because it's putting us in the moment and it gives a bit of specificity about exactly what she's doing and then the bit of dialogue you're a pr- you're princess of hollow I mean that's not for her benefit is it that's for the reader's benefit that's another bit of an info dump and I I'm suspicious of this like I it, think you maybe just get away with this kind of thing but it's a bit like remember you're being it's the coronation today everyone will be expecting you to look the part and i and that's not what's happening here it's not a coronation but it's it's that feeling of well here we are at the convention center what an odd thing to say like it's just yeah well here we are on holiday i've been waiting for this holiday for a long time yeah you wouldn't say that and it's just odd so i might have to put the same potato sack as the other apprentices might put on the same potato sack as the other apprentices but those girls look up to you i feel like this is just overdone a bit i would think it'd be there's always time for the powder kit and then i'd say your princess of hollow those girls look up just even those girls look up to you can't settle for anything less than being the prettiest one in the room yeah i I think you could just cut that down couldn't you um mistress darcy is going to give a test today in herb law i say i need time to compare notes with selen so that's like an extra two names mistress darcy and then selen who's i presumably a friend who's going to become important best friend so now we've got we've had one two now we've got on five names and then Misha hisses her disapproval. You should have thought of that last night, sister. So, so now we're being told that that that, that Misha is her sister. Like I, I, nobody 
refers to their sibling as sister. So what I think, what do I think of that as a first page? Well, this is in com- commercial uh, fantasy and it's supposed to be sort of like kind of re- re- readable and quick. Like I would say like overall, despite the fact I focused on the my points of difference, I do think like it, I really like it as a choice of an opening scene. Having the hair, you know, being prepared for a, some kind of ceremony um, and uh, or important thing that's going to happen and there's a test and this person is studying she's a princess but she's obviously put in the same education system as some of the other you know kids presumably nobles or whatever and and we're supposed to see that she's sort of chafing against her station a little bit and um that something's coming up and maybe her there's a little bit of rivalry with her sister or her sister's a little bit resentful and she's got some pressure from her grandma and whatever uh it's not very many words to establish that it's pretty good uh but there's a bunch of information which is just i, I just think it it feels like a first draft to me like in terms of like stripping back and letting us be in a world a little bit and letting us be with a character in the world as they understand it and and learn on the job i feel like there's a lot of front loading in a way that i'm not into and I think in a way that clogs up the story. And so this is one thing that I would, you know, that I I, I will watch for when I go back to my first page, which I've been working on for a while. It's just like, what are the needs of the moment and the needs of the scene? Because a first scene often has uh, this burden of like conveying... the world or we put this burden on it of conveying the world and, and, and going the council will be meeting in five days you're the king of Schmurgelville. no i'll be the king of Schmurgelville, tim that doesn't that's not a fantasy name that's not that's not high fantasy Schmurgelville. the Schmurgelville Schmurgelville is the is the dr zeusian uh, hamlet on the outskirts of the kingdom that's going to be Annexed, Your Majesty. We 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 must send our troops to annex Schmurgelville. And that's because they have some resource there that they need. Like we, anyway, look, look I, I, but it often ends up people just talking in these artificial ways to because they become delivery systems for for law. Who gives a? I mean, I just don't give a fuck who mystery i'm not ready for who mistress darcy is yet you know i i, I want to i'm look lots of people buy and enjoy peter v brett i don't want to sound like i'm being a dick he's doing really well and i see some real skill in that opening page i, I want to be clear like i think the things it's doing well are like I, we can learn from that right two lines to set up a context, a named character, and, you know, potentially their key conflict that's going to be galvanising them through this, you know, them chafing against expectation and the burden of the station that they're inheriting. That, that That's two sentences and done in a specific, interesting way. That's really, really, really good, right? Like, I really like that. 
Um, but there's just ways I would differentiate myself. And, I, and, and, and in some ways, I just feel like it feels sometimes like a little bit of a lack of confidence in the author themselves and in the audience, because I think actually the writing was good enough that you could strip a lot of that back. And just, I, I just want to get to know, I don't need really Misha to, to be there at all. Let's meet her another time. Let's just have the grandma there. And let's get a sense of the relationship. And let's just, what is going on in this scene? What are the needs of the scene? Not the needs of the novel. Fuck the novel. The novel will come along, but I need to know what's happening now. And what someone's thinking of now. I don't need to know the names of your teachers i don't need to know your exact the exact official title and i you know i think otherwise you know in fancy novels you'll get like this is what this is the rough geopolitical situation in the kingdom i don't care like i, I just what i want is i want what this character is thinking about now and what they care about now and i think it does it to a certain extent but i think there was too much faff and fluff and and i think you know that stuff about the kind of canvas tarp even just it, it feels a little bit like it's just kind of jumping ahead and it and it made you know it talked about a canvas tarp then someone else said it, it's a p- potato sack and it's like laboring the point a little bit and it, i just also found it a little bit overwhelming now I, you may disagree and I, I i sort of encourage you to like i say these are taste things and the i'm certainly not sneering at anyone else's work this is a an author who's you know miles more successful than me and has a you know a fan base of people who really enjoy their work so i it's a tasting and it's how i would approach it and i think that's how we have to approach our own work right and i'm just trying to be honest here is is we're looking at how we would differentiate ourselves what we liked and what we didn't like and i think my sort of broad takeaways from that would be dialogue is really good as a starting point some characters starting in media red res with some characters talking to each other it, it just it brings it alive and raises the enterprise i really like um maybe uh some status clashes between them that there's you know the grandma has the is sort of the boss in this situation but then there's a nice because but the print but there is a princess but she's actually the sort of in some ways the lowest status character in this scene she's being sort of prepared like a prize pony it's there was some good there's some good humor with like the powdering of the eyeball and the dialogue felt good although some of it was overwritten in it reminded me actually of the episode we did on uh on the tears in rain monologue and how that started off really law heavy and bulky and then got cut down and cut down and then Rutger Hauer finally sort of he did like one final cut where he cut it by about 50 percent the night before delivering it and uh and it just it just sort of improved with every with every strip back and I feel like I would would like to to cut this down because i think it would become more powerful with each each cut i think it would become lighter and more spare and more interesting um and and i would just i'd be able to i'd be able to retain stuff about grandma milona i'd be able to retain stuff we you know don't have three characters when you can have two 
don't name characters on the front page unless they're completely necessary. You shouldn't be naming five characters on your first page. Because the reader will try and remember them. We're trying to work out, I'm Princess of Hollow and you've told me the year and what's going like what do you want me to attend to I, what am i supposed to care about the the focus need, needs to be tighter than that i think or that's what i want to do um and i don't think you should use dialogue tags like i grumble because if you don't believe in your dialogue that much then you need to improve your dialogue but actually the dialogue was completely fine for conveying that so that's the first page. I don't normally like read stuff uh, sight unseen and then give feedback. And so I feel, I feel slightly uh, vulnerable in the sense that I hope I'm, you know, there's useful stuff coming out of this. I'm going to pause a second because I, I need the loo and then we'll come back and look at the next book because I, I, I think I, I feel like I'm, you know, my, the book I've been, the, the novel I'm working on for this section has got that. It opens with a sovereign and somebody talking to them. And so I feel like this is useful and relevant. And uh, yeah, um, and, and to a certain extent, I will just say as well that I'm going to be making, you know, when I'm giving feedback on the first page, I haven't read the whole book. So it's the first time I've seen the content. So I, I don't know. I don't think anything I could I said there could be radically changed by what's to come contextually speaking but i think you know obviously bear in mind that i haven't read what's to come and so there may be context that i'm missing okay so i will briefly pause and then i'll come back and i'll do the next bit hey so i'm back i don't normally take a break in recording but i i did this time maybe because the episode had gone on quite well anyway look i'm back and i'll, I'll let's just jump into another book we're looking at these first pages and, and and trying to I'm trying to figure out what we can learn from them what I can learn from them what I like and don't like I think it's just good practice to pick up books and remember that we're allowed to use them as learning tools people say read 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 I'm not going to go into that whole spiel again about how I feel about that but I do think it's not enough I, I, I think maybe at least we could say it's not enough just to read. If you're going to read a book and you want to learn about it, uh, for, you know, for the explicit purpose of learning, uh, then you need to actually do it in a directed and conscious way. So um, I'm going to, and, and again, I'm not trying to be sort of snippy about these books or catty about them. I'm just trying to engage with them. I suppose I'm hoping that it's, you know, it's out of respect. I'm going like, here's some work by my peers who and it's been published so there must be something I can learn from them and and we're looking at things that I we might do differently I might differentiate myself from as well okay so this is from um, the obsidian tower by Melissa Caruso uh it's again uh, a best-selling fantasy author so I've never read any of her work before but she you know she's found an audience so she must be doing something right uh, and uh, I'll just read the first bit of the first page so we can get a sense of how this... I, I think, I believe that this is a 
yeah, this is it says here begin uh, the Obsidian Tower begins a captivating epic fantasy trilogy. So I, I tried to get books that weren't halfway through a series because obviously that they have slightly different demands. So this is how the first chapter begins. There are two kinds of magic. There is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder, saving you when all is lost or opening doors to new worlds of possibility. And there is the kind that wrecks you, that shatters you, bitter in your mouth and jagged in your hand, breaking everything you touch. Mine was the second kind. My father's magic could revive blighted fields, turning them lush and green again, and coax apples from barren boughs in the dead of winter. Grass withered beneath my footsteps. My cousins kept the flocks in their villages healthy and strong and turned the wolves away to hunt elsewhere. I couldn't enter the stables of my own castle without bringing mortal danger to the horses. I should have been like the others. Ours was a line of royal vivamancers. Life magic flowed in our veins, ancient as the rain that washed down from the hills and nurtured the green valleys of Moorgrain. My grandmother was the immortal witch lord of Moorgrain, the Lady of Owls herself, whose magic coursed so deep through her domain that she could feel every she could feel the step of every rabbit and the fall of every every leaf. Right, I'll stop there. That's enough. Um So what did we think? There are two kinds of magic. Cool like it's a look, I I mostly say I like lines that open in media res that start with a character in a situation hopefully one that has an active challenge or conflict they're facing and starts, you know, in in a dramatic present with a story happening. And we get a name and we get to see them and we get some specifics. We get And we get some things that stimulate the senses, the five senses. Sight, sound, smell, touch and taste. I know you know them, but I think it's worth listing them when we come to writing. I don't think anything's too obvious because people miss them out. You know, we do sometimes some people could quite happily go through their entire book only doing visuals with the odd sound and that would be it. And they wouldn't engage in any of the other things. And of course, we engage to the full extent or limitations of our senses all the time and so to the degree that your any character that you're filtering a scene through has access to those senses uh, you know obviously someone might be vision impaired or be deaf or something like that but they you know you want to use them because it makes it feel real and immersive to the reader and just we experience the world through our senses right not through abstract concepts, which are a different thing. They are things that only exist in the mind and on the page. But concepts are still part of life. And, I, you know, for all that I like that as an opening approach, you know, a, a character in motion, a nice verb, specifics, concrete nouns rather than abstract ones. I, I think this is a fine first line. Like, I'm totally happy with it, you know? I, I'm happy with this as a first line. It's abstract, sure. I don't think there are is a particularly interesting opening, and it's not way to open a sentence, I mean. It's not particularly... It's not concrete. It's not crunchy. It's all... There's no character. There's no concrete nouns. The most concrete thing, there are two kinds of. Could That could be in any story, Those letter, those words, right? They're entirely 
conceptual relative things, right? They don't exist in the world. Magic is the most concrete thing in that line. However, I think it's a, I think it's a I think it's a, a fine, even good first line. Like I think I'm interested, right? I'm like, oh, what are they? Also, I know what genre is it now. It is now. Also, it's very clear. It's not a faffy first line. So I think it's a good first line. My point of kind of going on about all that stuff about abstraction and what kind of lines I tend to prefer is just to say, just because I prefer them, it doesn't mean you can't do it another way. It doesn't mean those other ways don't work. And I think this way does work. Uh, so I, I wouldn't ever want you to... I, I'm often describing principles and norms rather than laws, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm often talking about something that works really well and if you followed it you'll probably get good results doesn't mean there aren't other ways of doing it and this is there are two kinds of magic that's very story tellerish but it's not pretentious it sounds good and clear i know exactly you're not going oh, and it ends with the most important word magic and that is a key word because it tells us what kind of book this is um i mean you, it could still go on and be you that could be the opening line of a romantic novel and the magic could be in the sense of you know magical things happening uh that, that you know things that feel miraculous that are but in the world of emotions but i think mostly it gives us it tells us what kind of book this is immediately so it's setting expectations and it's making a promise and there are two kinds of magic sets up an implicit question that makes us want to read on so i think that's a good and it's a it's good to read this right and go okay so this is like this reminds us that we're allowed to open with law. We are allowed to do that, but we have to have a point of view and we have to have a voice driving it. And because so, so, then it goes on. There, there is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder, saving you when all is lost or opening doors to new worlds of possibility. Very abstract. You know, we're not in the specific. We're not located in a time. It's still just very broad. But it's clear these lines are not overly described they're not they're not florid and i think actually they've got a good cadence to them there is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder right that whole clause has one two syllable word and the rest are one syllable listen apart from wonder every word in that clause is one syllable it's not just two, it's two clauses because it's got the conjunction and but you get my point there is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder there is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder nice like it has a nice flow saving you when all is lost or opening doors to new worlds of possibility don't think you need to say new worlds of possibility you could just say new worlds that implies possibility if i was an editor i would have said you know you can cut that back a bit but pretty good and there is the kind that wrecks you. Look, get yeah, again, all one syllable. And there is the kind that wrecks you. And parallel construction. There is the kind that lifts you up and fills you with wonder. And there is the kind that wrecks you, that shatters you. Bitter in your mouth and jagged in your hand. Great use of parallel construction there. Bitter in your mouth and... So there's the we're using a simple conjunction to weigh two uh, parallel constructions uh, that do bitter in your mouth. There's it's it's something in your body part and jagged in your hand. Could be 
I don't know, mellow in your lap and fruity up your bum. That would be another, you wouldn't, I mean, that'd be an odd, I can't imagine an object that would fit both those things, but you get the idea, right? That, That we can, parallel construction is a lovely little bit of style. So the style is solid, but none of these words are tricky at all. None of them are difficult. Uh, probably my style is a bit more florid than this a bit more baroque probably i lean on slightly more complex conjunctions that suggest uh, a, 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 a you know a specific relationship between two clauses aside from just connecting them with an and that doesn't mean that mine sounds better i'm just saying i think this is actually this does a lot to create a kind of lyrical feel while being actually on the page quite spare. That's good. This is, a, you know, it's it's a good move. Uh, breaking everything you touch. And then mine was the second kind. Lovely bit of understatement. You can't see because I'm only reading this, but that my, that's just given its own paragraph. Mine was the second kind. So as soon as it says mine, that pronoun... That possessive pronoun is the first time we get a character and we know that we're reading first person narration. And it and again, it's there are two kinds of magic. The repetition of kind of you can repetition is not a crime, especially if it's nice, simple words. And especially if it sets up, sets up a little elite motif, a little repetition, a little feeling, a little flow, a little beat, and especially if you're able to use parallel construction. There are two kinds of magic. There is the kind, something, something, and there is the kind, da da da. Mine was the second kind. I I mean, I think that is a rather well-written opening for the genre it is, and for what it wants to achieve. Almost no notes. I would say to New Worlds, not New Worlds of Possibility. We don't need that little bit. That would be my only tweak, and I'm rather fussy. But otherwise, it's quite, you know, there's a confident voice in there. It's readable. It's interesting. I like it. My father's magic could revive blighted fields, turning them lush and green again. I mean, you know, this is going fairly squarely in terms of how it describes things. It's going for... It's not cliche exactly... But it does kind of go for the first, maybe the first things you'd think of when, you know, you talk about blight and then lush. And if you want to describe, you know, abundance, you might describe a lush green field. If we were playing Family Fortunes, which is known as Family Feud in the US, uh, then when we turned to the board and we said we asked 100 people, what image would you associate with uh, abundance and life i think you know you'd get a good 58 of respondents would say lush green fields i would imagine so like it, that's pretty much the first thing that would come off your list that your brain would offer but you know it's fine it's not it's not quite a cliche and so it's it's fine and coax apples from barren boughs in the dead of winter i mean you know like yeah i guess an apple on a tree is again fairly fairly central image that you would think of first it's not very surprising it's not quite as kooky as i would prefer but it's not it's not like none of these phrases clang they're also they're very clear images dead of winter is a is a bit of a cliche but again like these are all very uh 
clear and I like lush and green barren boughs there is a there is a clearly nice cadence to a lot of this as well grass withered beneath my footsteps Mm. again probably if we were doing a kind of death magic cliche the idea of someone stepping and their ground kind of the grass withering beneath their feet would be probably in the top three images we'd get back in that survey they would be the first thing that would come to my mind if I was just drawing from the if I just snapped the uh, clasp on the cultural carpet bag of death magic magic images that would be one of my first would be wilting grass maybe you know maybe a daisy would be in one of those in one of those footsteps and we'd see it sort of bend over and dip its head the petals falling off as it turns gray and then collapses and crumples to ash but but it's a but there's a nice bit of restraint there's not repetition grass withered beneath my footsteps my cousin and then so so but again a nice comparison you know this lovely bit of the life magic and then this quite blunt restrained grass withered beneath my footsteps back to the life again my cousins kept the flocks in their villages healthy and strong and turned the wolves away to hunt elsewhere i couldn't enter the stables of my own castle without bringing mortal danger to the horses it's nice you know nice comparisons there in terms of this it's it you know it feels like a speech it's got it's got the kind of good it's got the rhetorical rhythms of not a political speech in the sense of cliche but in the sense of clarity in the sense of the rhetorical parallel constructions and then i should have been like the others I like that as a line. And then it says, ours was a line of royal vivamancers. Well, I don't think, I don't like vivamancy as a technical, as a technical coinage. Because, because look, mancy is actually, if we're going to go, if we're going to talk about magic, mancy is about reading things, is about reading auguries from things. This is the thing that sort of, I, this is, you know, I'm splitting hairs here, but if you want to talk about being a that you know a ne- necromancers uh, i i've i've and i you know i've done a little bit of research on this but i've got forbidden rights the uh kiek heffer uh translation of 15th century the this manual necromancers manual and necromancer necromancy was about speaking with the dead to find treasure get messages necromancy in the same way as cartomancy right is divination through cards getting messages from cards uh any kind of any kind of mancer to, to that man that mancy suffix means communication divination right so vivamancy would be fine if you were doing divination through life if somebody was you know planting seeds or bulbs and then whatever sprouted uh you know if they were like the equivalent of gregor mendel and with their with their monks uh growing wrinkly or smooth peas but instead of inferring some of the rudiments of genetic principles were using that to work out whether it would be a 
uh, of, of uh, you know the next year the armies would be successful or you were finding out what the gods thought you were, that could be vivamancy right but but being able to make things come to life that's not mancy that's not what it means uh just that's i'm splitting hairs but i'm also not uh that what what you're actually doing is controlling and sculpting and bringing forth life and that's not what the term i, mean, I, I suppose what i'm actually being is a, a prescriptivist and, and a descriptivist linguist would argue well no through a series of associations we've now started using within genre fiction fiction mancy to mean you know if you're a pyromancer you are a mage who uses fire you don't divine from the fire which would be what we'd originally called it see because this is the thing is i think like, like necromancer is not a good term in an etymological sense for what for someone who reanimates corpses technically what you might call that person would be like a mortifex right you would use yeah morty meaning death and then and then fit fex from the same the root that you get fisa so like an artificer uh you know a mortifex right that would be that would be that would be what we would you know that would be the for me the most etymologically anyway like i'm getting i'm getting sidetracked but so i don't like that because it feels like somebody who doesn't i mean you can't hugely care about etymology and write fantasy without going completely mad if you set it in any world other than our own because you have to accept that it this that what the reader is reading is a translation because they couldn't possibly be speaking english there because of the context the english is like any language is so baked into our very specific cultural context that you can't right like it, it's nuts they wouldn't have the same words they couldn't possibly the only the only potential exception to that is like secondary world like parallel universe fantasies like maybe when we're reading something like his dark materials since some of the adjacent worlds clearly had similar or like uh, somehow uh, parallel or vaguely adjacent or cognate events they might have had similar although not non-identical etymological developments we, we can we can talk about that right if you've got two oxfords <laughs> clearly these worlds are connected in some way that makes it likely that there would be parallel language constructions possibly you can kind of hand wave that right that that makes sense but it doesn't make sense anywhere else because so much of you know you can't you know like to like the like a word sabotage which comes from uh the saboteurs which comes from sabots which are the dutch clogs that they threw into the machines to damage them to stop them working out of protest right like that word doesn't exist anywhere else you can't have the same word in your fantasy world because that event didn't happen that allowed for that coinage and we don't have all these different languages feeding into english uh, and it's fine you just have to the reader just has to assume that what they are reading is a translation of what those people would say in that world it's what i think about language about fantasy can you understand why I sometimes find it so hard to write? Because I'm like, ah, this doesn't make sense. Anyway, I don't particularly like that. It, it feels, I feel like someone, I feel like that's a line that would be 
that would be underlined and be a blue link in the Wikipedia page of this first page that's going like concept, brat, brat, brat. And I'm just like, you know, you don't need to. Why? Why are you dumping? This is you're starting a little info dump. I want to go. I want to get some story now. I'm a little bit. I mean, I'm not as bothered as I'm saying. I'm just saying my preference would be not to do this. Life magic flowed in our... Ours was a line of royal vivomancers. Life magic flowed in our veins. Oh, wait. So, you, I mean, what it's done there is it's gone, in case vivomancy wasn't obvious enough for you, I'm going to immediately define it as life magic. Don't We don't need to know that vivomancy. You just say, I should have been like the others. Life magic flowed in our veins. We don't need to know that you're royal vivomancers. Don't set that up. It's fine. We'll find out later. Life magic flowed in our veins, ancient as the rain that washed down from the hills and nurtured the green valleys of Morgrain. So, um, I like all the flow. The sentence flow of these sentences is nice. Flowed in our veins, ancient as the rain that washed down from the hills and nurtured. It's nice. It's a nice image. And nurtured the green valleys of Morgrain. Don't call it Morgrain. Why is it called Morgrain? Because it's a, because it's, because it's fertile farming ground because you have an arable community you call it more grain i mean that is not a dumb name actually in fairness that is my that's me going that seems like a super obvious name for some but that's how if you look at the etymology of a bunch of names for for britain they are we we just have oxford a great it's just a ford over the river ox cambridge it's a bridge over the river Cam. Like, yeah, well, of course. Like, what? Yeah, like, we have super... Bristol, Brigstow, Bridgetown. That's what... It, Bristol comes from Brigstow, comes from Bridgetown. We, like, British place names are fucking dumb. So, like, Morgrain's a completely plausible name. I just don't like... I just recoil from it as a reader. Because I can imagine the author sitting down i don't know more grain it just sounds like it just, it's just one step away from calling it like wheatopia or something and it sounds a little bit like a breakfast cereal i don't know maybe it's because it reminds me of rogaine i don't know i i, I prefer it to be a bit more disguised but if someone pointed it out to me they'd actually say tim that's actually probably a very plausible name in fact that's kind of hard realism in many ways i'd be like yeah yeah you're right so i'm nitpicking my grandmother was the immortal witch lord of morgrain the lady of owls herself yeah uh, the whose magic coursed so deep through her domain that she could feel the step of every rabbit and the fall of every leaf i like that i like i mean that's quite a cool that's quite a cool image. The idea that you, like the footfall of a rabbit, you'd feel it pour, pour, pouring through you. I like that. So how do I feel over overall about that first page? I pretty much like it. I don't think I would ever write like that. But I'm left pretty impressed, you know? I don't, I, 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 again, I don't want to sound like I'm judging these writers, like I have a right to sit back and go, okay, Tim Clare, the great writer, evaluates them. I'm just saying, what can we learn from these? And how do we triangulate ourselves and what we want to do with our writing compared to that? that? And I'm like, 
that's a good style to have in your portfolio. That's a good style to sort of like load into the hopper of the great minigun of different approaches. What a lovely storybook, engaging, accessible, welcoming style. Not cheesy, accessible and welcoming, but just like if I want to sit down, you know, my concentration has been so shredded these past few years and sometimes I just feel so stressed and not very happy and I know I could sit down and read that and I'd feel like I I, I, I'd feel like I could follow it I feel like I'm going to get stuff on every page and I feel like it's not messing about with me and I feel like I'm going to get a story and it's going to engage my senses without it being like this grueling ordeal of comprehension. That's pretty cool. Like, the, I want to say, like, I don't ever think that complexity is... Uh, complexity is is neutral, right? It's just a... It's just, it's just a, a... It's just a completely meaningless vector in terms of merit of a book uh, or a, any work of art or a, indeed a person. Um... Maybe with higher levels of complexity, you have the potential to do some things that you can't with simpler narratives. Maybe. Uh, Certainly, maybe it gives you a little bit more tighter resolution to do some um, more, to, to, to paint some slightly finer and more nuanced relationships between different things. But even if something is isn't, making even if ultimately a story doesn't make a kind of deep or original ideological point i still think it is deep can be deeply 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 valuable as art and i just think how often in our lives we want something to escape into we want a refuge we want something that uh, feels like it can take us out of our life because life can be intrinsically hard you know sometimes you want the book that you can take that you can read in the hospital waiting room while you're waiting for your test or you're waiting for your results or you are sitting by the bedside of somebody you love while they sleep um, because you want to be there with them during visiting hours you know this is the meat and potatoes of human life are those kind of moments or you're just, you know, I remember reading a lot of fantasy when I was in a job that I just did not enjoy. You know, this minimum wage job, doing data entry. Nobody there was particularly nasty, but I, you know, but I didn't have friends at that job either. It didn't feel like meaningful or valuable work to me. I didn't have really, I barely had enough money to live on. But I would go for my lunch and on that hour lunch break, I could sit and read a book and that felt like my time. And those books brought me pleasure and they gave me relief and they gave me space and they brought happiness and meaning into my day and a sense of connection and a sense of something outside my immediate circumstances and outside myself. And if you can do that with your work, whatever genre you're writing in, you know, in some ways, like a, a often literary fiction is the least amenable to 
that sort of deep and important work of giving respite to a human being. I mean, what an amazing thing to do for somebody, I, I think. I, 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 certainly you can have different aspirations for your own work in terms of what it means to you. Maybe you want to com- communicate an important political message or articulate something that's meant a lot to you. Though Those are fine things too. I'm not suggesting a sort of uh, hierarchy. But to me, personally, if I can ever write something that gives somebody... Some refuge and helps them feel at some point in their life when things aren't as they'd like that there is a world outside their immediate circumstances. I think that would be the most meaningful thing I can imagine me achieving with my life, you know. Is to, is to do something like that and it's books like this um that i think can do that so i never want to make it sound when i call something simple or telling a simple story or it's straightforward i never ever ever want to make it sound like i'm being snooty uh it's a bit like you know i just want to be careful because i know people hear messages and different things that i say i remember one person uh objecting because i said in a you know, when I was talking about something, a piece of writing, I suggested, you know, try to avoid um, just turning, you know, if you do this little workshop piece or whatever, try to avoid just turning it into a joke or trying to undercut it with humour. And they took from that, I was saying, humour isn't valuable, do serious writing. Now, what I was trying to say is like, commit to the, hold the emotional note and commit to it and try not to use humour to distance yourself from the work because I see that a lot in workshops is people doing par- writing parody people writing humour people undercutting the end of a sort of ostensibly serious piece with like a goofy punchline like the person just slips over <laughs> into a cow pat and goes I did a duty and it's and it's like I, I see what you're doing you're saying you it's like an alibi and it's like you can't say to me that wasn't a good piece you know it was just a bit of fun but like i i spent 10 years doing stand-up <laughs> and i never so the idea that i don't value humor is is just crazy to me but i can understand how other people see it so i just i, I feel like i want to lay some of this out a little bit should we do should we do one more should we do one more opening and see how that's handled and and we can oh yeah, there goes a book and I don't even think this is fantasy exactly. I think this might be historical fiction. Um, is this the third book in a... I don't know. Where, where are we? Yeah, maybe this is... Let's have a look at this. Anyway, this is Iron Queen by Joanna Courtney which is apparently uh, maybe set in the England Bronze Age. I don't know that it's uh, fantasy per se, 
but I think this might be the third book. I don't know. It looks like it might be. Now I'm opening it up. I may have got that wrong. But um, anyway. Uh, or, it may, or perhaps it's just part of a series. Anyway, so here's chapter one. It starts with... Um, so it starts with uh, quite a few little subtitles. Chapter one, Beacon Hill, the lands of the Coritani. And then in uh, italics it says, Anagantio, stay home days. And then <laughs> and then in brackets, February. I, I feel like that's somebody who's done some research and wants us to know... Uh, recounting all of those things to us in, in to me in ways that are completely meaning to meaningless to me at this point i'm like yeah okay but i don't know what any of that means <laughs> sorry so uh, and here's where the story starts the ice was spirit bright on this last day before imbolc when cordelia stepped cautiously out into the rugged compound of beacon hill it was months since she'd last been to the central fortress, and she'd forgotten how craggy it was up here in the heartlands of the Coritani. She could feel the spirits pushing out of the land in the jagged rocks, and twisted trees that rose relentlessly beneath between the roundhouses, reminding all men of their place in the world. Heading past the sacred oak at the centre of the compound, she made for the great iron beacon at its peak. The fort was enclosed by earthen ramparts higher than the tallest man, but the hill rose above them, making it easy to see out across the Coritani lands on all sides. It was dark yet, and no one else was stirring in either the roundhouses within the ramparts or the buyers and workshops just outside them. Okay, so I, I, I do get the sense that this is somebody who has visited an Iron Age fort and, is, and, and had a look and stood on the hill and then went, okay... Here's, I'm going to write this from a character, but uh, also, probably, there were buyers and workshops outside of this, uh, outside of this wall, uh, think archaeologist. Ar I, I do get that sense, um, but I don't really dislike this as an opening, right? The, the ice was spirit bright on this last day before Imbolc, when Cordelia stepped cautiously out into the rugged compound of Beacon Hill. I wouldn't have said stepped cautiously. Stepped cautiously out. No, that's two... That's two adverbs in your first sentence. New. But stepped. How about the ice was spirit bright on this last day before Imbolc when Cordelia stepped out into the rugged compound of Beacon Hill? I mean, stepped has got an implied caution. I don't really care whether it's cautious or not. But I do like that. That's a nice. The ice was spirit bright. Yeah, cool. Um, it was months since she'd last been to the central fortress. And she'd forgotten how craggy it was up here in the heartlands of the Coritani. I mean, this is. Why do we need Beacon Hill, the lands of the Coritani, as a, a title when you've just told us here? I now know that none of that was helpful to me, but this is good. And, and what, and the and the specific words Beacon Hill, Goritani. I like all those. I like them. They're, they're nice. They're, they're lyrical words. She could feel the spirits pushing out of the land in the jagged rocks and twisted trees. Yeah, I like that. That feel. I feel a chill. I, that feels like nice, vivid, but comprehensible writing to me, at least that rose relentlessly beneath the roundhouses. Again, I wouldn't use that that adverb. And I'm not just being an anti-adverb purist. 
it starts to sound a little purple and rose relentlessly as well that alliteration doesn't really serve your case in terms of make rose relentlessly it it starts it starts to sound a little bit like i'm going to throw an arm across my face flop onto a chaise long and 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 and, and start uh, fanning myself while gasping whatever shall become of us it's it's a little bit purple because why not just say she could feel the spirits pushing out of the land? See, that if you want things to feel... I mean, like that has a relentless, chilly feel. She could feel the spirits pushing out of the land in the jagged rocks and twisted trees. Also, because you don't want twisted trees that rose relentlessly. You don't want those two uh, alliterations after each other because it starts to sound a bit silly. But jagged rocks and twisted trees that rose between the roundhouses that would be good that rose between the roundhouses we don't need a rose what do you mean rose relentlessly it doesn't make sense they're not being pushed down they are it doesn't add anything we've seen they are jagged rocks and twisted trees reminding all men of their place in the world lovely just cut you where's the editors when you need them but i like I, you know what i've got from this one and the previous one is a kind of spareness that i appreciate i tend to be as i've said more baroque more fiddly and i think that's to my detriment i think this is better writing than i would typically produce uh because it just holds back a little bit and it gives the words space. Heading past the sacred oak at the centre of the compound. Yeah. She made for the great iron beacon at its peak. Yeah, I like that. I understand that. I almost feel like I want the iron beacon to be the word that ends the image, that ends the sentence. Because you want the sentence structure to mirror almost a camera shot. You want us to go, she headed past the... The, the sacred oak and da 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 so we're cameras panning up towards the great iron beacon so then it's like we with the 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 sentence is paralleling her walking up the hill that would be my ideal her but because at its peak is just a little bit of logistical busy work that at the end of the sentence so the whole sentence just ends with a little a little the little raspy end of a of a, a balloon letting out a bit of air is the end of that sentence great iron beacon oof that's the that's the meat of that sentence that's the big whoomph and we want to end on that we don't want to we don't want to put it in the middle of the sentence and then stuff the end of the sentence with a few screws of scrap paper just to bulk it out um the fort was enclosed by earth and rampart parts higher than the tallest man nice yeah earth and ramparts oh earth and ramparts that's a hearty term isn't it that's lovely earth and ramparts oh that's a that's a british phrase earth and ramparts mm, i'm not joking either i love that it's a lovely phrase and it's the right phrase it's, why would you deny yourself these rich terms um higher than the tallest man yeah good in-universe way of describing it but the hill rose above them, making it easy to see it out across the Coritani lands on all sides. Well, that's just you doing a bit of laminated tourist 
information board nailed to the side of those ramparts. Like, either have her, have Cordelia look. What? I mean, it's just like immediately the language becomes more conceptual and less interesting and more full of, like, grammatical cartilage. Making it easy Ugh. to see out across the Corritani lands on, and it ends on on all sides. It's just not. It's no. There's there's no robust guts. That is no. That earth and ramparts are not suggested by phrases like making it easy. But the hill rose above them, so that's a that's a clause uh, banded by. Uh, commas that starts with but and ends with above them Ugh, it's all gram it's all conceptual uh abstract grammar and i think that's why that sentence just turns into a little wet fart at the end um it was dark yet and no one else was stirring in either the roundhouses within the ramparts or the bars and workshops just outside them yeah so why are you describing it then why are you saying there's a bunch of stuff that isn't happening? And there was nothing happening. There was nothing ha- happening in the in the small purple ice cream van floating in the sky. There was also nothing happening uh, in the... You know, like, don't mention it then. It was no one was stirring. It was dark yet and no one else was stirring. Well, you can just say no one was stirring. No one aside from Cordelia. You know, like, but don't in either the round in either the roundhouses within the ramparts, or the buyers and work. Yeah, who gives a like that? You don't turn our attention. The her attention. If you want to describe those things, describe them in positive terms by what is happening. Describe, you know, blades of ice forming on the on on their roofs. Uh, describe. I don't know, like a a a, a rabbit, uh, sort of hopping past, you know, sticking its head out behind one of them and then and then dashing for cover or something like that. Describe something that is happening. Describe a bird alighting on the top of one of them. Describe, uh, I don't know, maybe there's heat inside them and and there's a kind of vapor rising from some of them or something i don't know what there is to describe it's night time right i don't know what there is about them but the absence of movement is not a compelling reason to bring them up it's just like me describing walking through my house and going there were no weasels in the modern plumbing system yeah I'm sure that's true, but why the fuck are you mentioning it then? You know, um, I, I I quite like the tone of that as well. I know I've realised I picked them apart a little bit, but I, I'm not joking when I say I do like them. I'm just saying we got to we want to give, especially at your first page, like you just want the reader to have this frictionless entry to your world. Or if there is friction, you want it to rub them in the right places, right? You want the right kind of friction. You want the kind of friction that um, um, makes them feel compelled to continue. And uh, But those are really interesting. And I think it's clear to see from some of the, their qualities um, what they're doing well. And it makes me think, uh, next episode, I want to have a look at my first page which i'll have rewritten a bit uh, of my fantasy novel that i'm working on for this series and and we'll just see 
how it's going. Again, I've sort of said that I'm going to go a little easy on critiquing my own work in terms of line reads because that didn't go super well when I did it before. Um, but, but you know, I, I, I can read what I've done to keep you in the loop and just give some very brief overview notes because it strikes me as well that it's nice to put something, if you're going to put something in a setting and in a moment, it's nice to try and think how you can make that visually compelling and interesting. And you just want to have a little, I think you just want to have a little, there's a, there's a tradition apparently in American slam or some areas of American slam, not right across it and probably not anymore where um, if a poet was de delivering a line and the audience can guess the rhyme that's coming in the next line and they shout it out, you're basically, they would shout it out. And, and that was basically a mark against you. Like if people could guess where you were going with a rhyme, like it seemed so obvious that you were kind of, the audience could get there before you. And I think that's a good principle to go with your writing. You know, if the reader can sees where you're going with the end of your sentence or the sentence after it and can get there before you, you're probably failing as a writer because you're just taking the path of least resistance. And, you know, sometimes we use it, right? Sometimes we take these cultural uh, concepts or archetypes. You know, you just say, oh, there's a vampire. The reader can fill in loads of details about what a vampire is. And you can, you've, you very quickly, you've established something, a bunch of information and lore, and then you can just get on with telling your story. So I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for using those kind of shortcuts. But maybe, I don't know, Maybe sometimes you don't want to start something off and just say the person's in a in a castle tower and the castle is just a normal castle. Maybe it would be more interesting if you just go, how is this different? How is this interesting? I, I'm just putting this in as an audio note to myself, but I know that in the book now, I want one of the fights. I think I said I wanted something to be in... Somebody maybe was growing lots of rare orchids or something, but I'd love it to be in a kind of uh in the after the fashion of old sort of japanese uh samurai fights and the kind of pulp uh stories i'd love it to be in an orchard with like pink blossom where someone's able to like where movement is telegraphed by blossom falling down or something you know people can drop out of it and there can be flurries of blossom that make someone invisible but it'd be really nice if that was on a roof i'd like the i like the idea of these trees growing on a roof or maybe on this floating island that i mentioned um that maybe the commodore or whatever level the admiral of the fleet could have but i really really like the idea of and i think kind of like pink blossom orchard fight is not what you think of in conventional sword and sorcery fantasy. I'm sure it's happened lots of times, but I'm just trying to think myself away from king, castle, British. There'll be some dragons. There'll be some medieval level technology. I've already said it's going to be sort of more, not really located, not quite steampunk either, but there's some airships because I like airships and things like that. We'll, we'll, we'll fiddle about with it. And I wonder whether that opening needs to have something more interesting than just if the 
person if the main character is going to be in a castle tower looking down maybe i just want to make one or two things a little bit weirder or more interesting just to, it's difficult right it's difficult we don't want to make the reader feel immediately <laughs> like 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 they've just woken up on the nose cone of a, ro- a a rocket and they're having like an insane rush of psychedelic images that they don't understand but i would like it to be cool and interesting and even if just everything's made out of you know a, you know a black glass like substance or something like that if the walls are translate i don't know what you do but i'd, I'd be just good for everything to feel just to feel like there's a richness and a little head a little bath for your brain uh on each line so that that's my thinking and next episode we'll go step into that if you enjoyed today's episode um one you can kind of let me know i'll put a link to the uh death of a thousand cuts discord which is if you write and you want to connect with other writers who listen to the show and share some work and talk about writing and ask for help there's we've got a nice little community there or you can just search for death of a thousand cuts discord and sign up it'd be lovely to have you if you'd like to join us um if you like the show and you want to support me you can go to my coffee page again there'll be a link to that in the uh description of today's show um but you can just search ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare you don't need to search you can put it into the title bar and uh, drop me a few beans it helps me to keep the lights on uh and i've got a book out called coward why we get anxious and what we can do about it which is a non-fiction book about my experiences with um, mental illness and uh uh, anxiety and panic attacks and uh, you know my journey to deal with those and i think it's quite funny and i've enjoyed i enjoyed writing it um that's it that's the show hope that was useful it was a little bit of experiment for me um but thank you for sticking around um i'd love to hear your thoughts on it um as long as you are relatively kind to me although you can be robust and honest in your feedback um thank you uh thank you for sticking with me to the end and i wish you a wonderful week of writing.